34, we're back. We are live. Thank you so much to Mr. Lawson Naidu for his indulgence. I stopped it at 15 minutes because that's the time that he had made allowance for for that particular discussion. I would have loved to have taken it on. Suffice to say, you heard for yourselves and you can be the judge for yourselves as to whether or not this matter is gaining any traction and making progress insofar as it relates to the administrative crisis that has beleaguered cricket South Africa and which translates to the results on the field of Pelé. This, of course, does not augur well for the fact that on the 26th we are taking on India, who are number two in the ICC Test Championship, if the loss result is anything to go by. But it could easily be said that India are the top test nation in the world. Taking place from Centurion Park, this is on the 26th until the 30th of December. First test, South Africa, India. Biggest, or BCCI, is the biggest... Um, member state of the ICC, so CSA as well has lost out on big money on this thing insofar as it relates to all the pomp and ceremony that would otherwise attend a big tour as is this. We move the conversation on from the cricketing field into the classrooms, as it were, and the question is, what is the present status of our schooling and what does the future hold for our schooling framework in Africa? Our guest this evening is Dr. David Makuba, teacher-in-chief and CEO of Mr. Mac, the name of the organizations. We will call him Mr. Mac because that's what his students call him and that's what he wants me to call him. Mr. Mac, good evening. Thank you so much for joining. Sangeva, good evening. Good evening, listeners. It's a pleasure to be on the show. Thank you. Certainly, two years in now, this is our second December living in the times of COVID, and in many respects, people are just learning to live with it, with the dynamism of the virus itself. The world is starting to vaccinate and get into the conversations around vaccinations and whether or not they should be mandatory. One thing remains constant, though, the education environment sector is incredibly under strain and stress, and in fact, it has almost invariably and for all times changed the rules of engagement. What exactly don't we know firsthand that we ought to be engaging more seriously about education? Um, I'm going to be generous here, Sungezo. We're in a tough, tough, tough place. And I'm not going to get into the details between basic education and tertiary education. But fundamentally, we've got a 70-30 split. Mm-hmm. And let me explain what I mean by that. Um, 30% of our kids, and I'm being generous, are going to get a relatively robust education. They can compete domestically within South Africa and the broader African continent globally. And I'm being generous here. Mm-hmm. They'll make something of their lives. 30%. 70%. I'm being generous. Yeah, sure. Because I don't want naysayers coming in. It's less than that. So I'm going to give it a 30%. I'm with you. 70% of our kids are in a really, really tough place. And it's a combination of factors. COVID is one of them. But that added on to the difficulties we were already experiencing um, before COVID hit. But our ability to make our kids relevant and able to add value to our current economy and how the world economy is evolving it's severely stressed in most of our uh, educational institutions. So 30% on track, particularly if you've got money and you can pay for expensive education, 70% of kids are going to be in a really, really tight spot. Mm -hmm. Now, this means what? When we break it down now, there are socioeconomic factors 
that arise because of these statistics, 3070. Before yeah. we even talk, in fact, about what this means, how do we yeah. get to the split of 70-30? In as much as it will now be convenient, particularly for administrators and the public sector to blame everything on COVID, we are wiser yeah. than that to know that it isn't all COVID. Rather, if anything, COVID has exposed what we've always known would one day blow up in our faces if the problems were left unattended. And well, COVID yeah. expedited all of that. Yeah. What exactly are those indicators that the successive administrations have ignored, yeah. have not attended, should have done? I can ask indefinite questions. You know the point. Absolutely. Um, so, so it gives you a spot on. I'm going to run you through four or five of those. Uh, but first and foremost, I'm going to be controversial. The government is not responsible for the education of our kids. We are. So I really want to be controversial there. It's very, very easy for us to pass the buck onto the government. It's not the government's responsibility. They've got a role to play. As parents, we are. But to come back to your original point, what are the key performance indicators as to why we're falling so behind in our schools? Um, we've known these problems for a long time. The global studies that have been done on these. Now, I'll run you through some of the most important ones. If you look at the most successful and the most poorly performing schools, they've got certain commonalities. One, the headmaster. Right? You have a head teacher or headmaster who's engaged, who's effective, who holds the teachers accountable and responsible. The second thing is obviously the teachers themselves. Not only are they technically qualified, but do they have the passion, the responsibility? Do they get to work in time? Are they really professionals in the sense that they see teaching as a calling and they're invested in what they do. The third thing in country analysis is the culture of learning. Where do we put learning, education within our culture? Is it something that's highly esteemed, that's seen as a breakout of poverty as it is in, I'm just using random countries mm -hmm. here, Ghana, um, in Kenya, or is it something that's mediocre? You know, you look at the tenderpreneurs, and that gets much more emphasis than the value of education itself. The parental involvement is the other key one. And schools that have done particularly well, countries that are doing well in terms of education and outcomes, parental involvement is absolutely critical. And then the final one, and it's obvious, it's the learner or the student himself. And we know it as we get older. Am I engaged? Do I want to learn? Am I going to apply myself? Or well, maybe in a fantastic school, but I take that for granted. I don't apply myself, and there are poor outcomes as a result. In country after country, school after school, those key characteristics are absolutely essential. And I was very, very intentional in leaving out the infrastructure aspect, because it is there. It comes after all of those. Because as we see time after time, even in South Africa, you get a school in Limpopo, in the rural Eastern Cape, very poor, very basic infrastructure, but they outperform. So it's not to discount the infrastructure, but some of those other qualitative people aspects that I spoke about have a much more pronounced effect on the education outcomes than the infrastructure itself. Those are the key things. We've known about them for a long time. We haven't addressed them. The government's responsibility is not to educate the nation. Want to elaborate on that? 
the gap, the, I'm going to change it around. I said it differently. It's our responsibility to educate our kids. I've got a four-year-old daughter who's sitting at the moment watching TV because it's holiday time and she doesn't have to be in bed. It's my responsibility as a parent to make sure she gets the best education I can give her. There's a role for government to play in that. The government provides schools. The government provides a curriculum that sets the standards through soccer. There's a role for government. I'm not discounting that. But I can't say if the government doesn't perform, my child is wherever she is. I've got to say with the little that I have, the little that I have as a teacher, I'm a teacher, what can I do to best enhance my child's education? And that's really what we have to build up societally. It's not to let the government off the hook, but it's to say as parents, as uncles, as aunts, as communities, what's the contribution that we can make? Because if we simply point at the government, no, the government must do this, the minister must do this, uh, the minister in basic education, we've been having that discussion for more than 25 years. I would imagine if government officials heard you say this, they'd be cheering you on because it would absolve them of some of the drastic and systemic failures that they've sat and presided over for the last 27 years. I do accept, and this is what I'm understanding ultimately your point to be insofar as it relates to the shared responsibility of teaching and learning in the country. There certainly is a role for the parent and the family. There's a role yeah. for the community. There is a role for civic society in the general sense as there is for government. But the primary responsibility is that of the government. That's why you have public schools, South African Schools Act. There's the Constitution. Yeah. There is Department of Health and, and, and Department of Social Development who are sort of fundamental stakeholders and key stakeholders perhaps to education at large. To perhaps yeah. pin it onto the parent is probably a stretch too far. Here's why as well. It might not contemplate the history of this country because I imagine your disposition comes from a more privileged position than it might be of a typical South African family position. Majority black African who, if they did have education, it was the Bandu education system, if yeah. that. The history is known. But now precisely that parent cannot be expected to load or carry that responsibility of educating a child. You speak about the fact that your child yeah. is watching TV. Many South African mm. homes would love to have TV precisely for education purposes, but they don't. Mm. They don't have the basic infrastructure of a home, much less for a home that is conducive for the culture yeah. of learning. That is then the responsibility of government to see that it creates that environment, not just in education, yeah. but in all sectors of society, so that the key indicators, yeah. healthcare, education can improve. Yeah. So, so again, I'm being intentionally very, very provocative, Sungeso, and I agree with actually everything you say. I actually agree with everything you say. Um, but I, I tell the story, and I'm going to tell the story again to you just to make the point. And it reinforces what you said, what you've said, but it also explains what I've said. And this story is about a young boy born in a rural area, impoverished, African child, eighth child within his family, last born. By the time he gets to two years of age, both his parents are dead. He's orphaned. By the time he gets to six years of age, he's involved in a freak accident. His left leg is injured, and he gets disabled for the rest of his life. Turn 16, he has to start working. His siblings say there's no money. 
and the only job he can get is digging sewage trenches. That's the only job he could get. Two weeks into this job, the foreman comes to him and says, listen, this is not working. You're disabled. You're slowing down the whole team. We can't have you. Go to Edgar's stores. I've got a friend who works there. Ask him if he's got a job for you. That boy goes there, gets a job at Edgar's. They, they gave him a fancy title, General Cleaner. Right? 30 years later, this young African child with very little education, rural, a peasant child, is managing director of Edgar's stores. I'm the beneficiary of that. I'm the beneficiary of that. So you're spot on. But the point I'm trying to make is that as parents, there's a significant role, as you pointed out, for government, social welfare, education, etc., etc., and so forth. But if you leave it to those authorities alone, and it's a choice, Mm-hmm. It's a choice you have to make. If you leave it to those authorities alone, the fact of the matter is 70% of your kids are going to get a raw deal. That's the reality. Then the question becomes, what do you do next? And that's simply the challenge I'm putting out for all of us. That's the challenge my father faced. So that guy I'm telling you about you. was a peasant. He became empty. That's the challenge he faced. And that's the difference he managed to make for his kids working his way up from the bottom. You've got a choice. Do something that adds to what the government is doing, and there's some good they're doing, but as you pointed out, there's significant limitations as well. Or leave your kids to the fate of what the public authorities will do. That's the tough choice we face as parents. Let's move on slightly because we have run out of time. I want to ask one, maybe two questions if time permits. We are now at the end of the academic year 2021, second year living under COVID. Are we in a better position in 2022 or are we in a worse position in 2022 against the academic year 2020? I'm trying to establish if whether or not we are improving or things are just getting worse. Um, It's a combination of both. Um, Let me start with the positive. We are learning and we are learning from 2021 and uh, 2020, um, and, and, and some schools are able to pivot. Um, a, a lot of schools have been able to go online, even the universities, etc. So, so we're on a learning curve, and we have made some progress in that regard. But at the same time, if you take a look at the hours we are still losing, there's a cohort, a tranche of students who are falling further and further behind on a net basis as a country we are falling further and further behind. So as much as there's learning taking place, um, there is some progress being seen on a net basis simply due to the lost class hours. We are falling further and further behind. Um, now, the opportunities uh, for people who've got access to the Internet, for instance, uh, to use some of the online resources that are available. But unfortunately, as you pointed out, there's a significant portion of our population which simply does not have access to that. Um, So we've got to be optimistic. We've got to press on and say we're going to do better. The reality, however, is for the typical African child who's not well off in a rural area, like my father was, they are falling further and further behind. And we've got to take some radical measures to, to, to get that situation right. Radical measure? Give me one or two. South Africa um, Academic Year 2022. Uh, 
I'm going to give you a radical example. And I use this with my executive education students. Um, I say to them, all right, guys, if we take a look at the education outcome and take a look at how much spending we do for education, if we have to take all that money, all right, apply it still in the education space, but get a private sector institution to deploy this money and get outcomes which are 20, 30 percent better, would you do it? And most of them say no. They say, no, David, the private sector. They get very, very ideological about it. Those very, very same people who are attending these executive education programs. I ask them, which kids, which schools are your kids going to? Most of those kids are going to private schools. So the radical thing for me is to get beyond the ideology. It's not about whether the mouth, uh, the cat is black or white. Does it catch mice? And in South Africa, a big part of what we have to get over is this ideology in terms of getting education done. We've got to bring in all the parties that can make a positive contribution. Pragmatically, that includes the private sector. That's the reality. And if you had to look at my child and say, David, you pay 1,000 rand per month, this goes to the private sector, this goes to the public sector, the private sector will give you better outcomes. When we do it on a personal basis for our own children, the choice would be simple. But when we do it for other people's children, we get very, very ideological. And we've got to get radical and pragmatic about that. That's the most radical thing I'm putting forward. Bring in the private sector. If they can do a better job, we're spending the same amount of money, we're getting better outcomes. Let's use those resources we've got in the country. Actually, I do have a bit more time. I beg your pardon. I just got my notes a little mixed up. We're actually in festive programming, so we don't have to rush for the 21-hour sure. news, even though I'm just going to keep to the style and sort of have a break at 21 hours. Do I have your indulgence, say, for another eight minutes? Absolutely. Let's Absolutely. then talk about some of the issues that I really wanted to probe, but I just was not prepared to engage because of the time issue. Earlier on, I mm. said that 70-30 split, and I'm just going to remind the listeners that I'm talking to Mr. Mack, as he is called, otherwise David Makova, he is the CEO yeah. of Mr. Mack. You, you mentioned that three out of ten South African scholars, let me call them that, will be yeah. able to engage the world from the education system that the South African government and private sector at large offers. But yeah. more, well, the, the opposite of that is this. Seven out of ten of yeah. the very same class will not be able to do so. In other words, we have diminishing returns as against the investment into education and the hope for a better future because we are not providing the manpower behind that better future with the necessary skills to be able to move us from one to two. That, of course, is a result of many things. We've spoken about the many things. Yeah. Can we mm. now talk about, without quantifying it because we can't, but perhaps yes. talk about what this significant figure is. Seven out of ten children will not be able to, as it were, make a meaningful contribution to use your loose language. These are deep socioeconomic problems that are just waiting to manifest. It's, it's, yeah. it's not a question of if, it's a question of when. And we don't know yeah. what other external forces, acts of God like coronavirus, will do to exacerbate mm. or make the conditions as poor as they would be, yeah. even more poor. 
Absolutely, absolutely. So what are we talking um, about here? What are socioeconomic issues that we should look forward to? Yeah. So, so uh, sometimes we try and make this thing a bit more complicated than it actually is. And again, I'm going to use just a, a very anecdotal example that makes the point. Uh, many years ago, Sengheza, I graduated for my PhD. And after you graduate for your PhD, there's a photo- photograph they take. And there was this 14-year-old girl. She was the one who was taking the photographs. And I had my whole family there, probably about eight or nine family members. She moved us around. Sir, please stand over here. Ma'am, please stand over there. Uh, sir, if you can move a bit, turn around a little bit, etc., etc. 14 years old. Now, what that girl was doing was she was working in a family business. And the skills she had learned were not just the technical, but how do I talk to people? Mm-hmm. How do I relate to people? And these are skills that are available to us, especially as African communities, on a day-to-day basis. How do I talk to people? And a lot of employers are looking for those skills. Is this someone who can talk to people? Is this someone who's disciplined? Is this someone that can show up at work on time? Is this someone who has got the humility to learn? Oh, yes, they've got a matric certificate. Okay, that's fine. That's a given. We take that. They can read. Hopefully they can write. That's a basic. But the other Soft skills, skills, social skills, life skills. Exactly. The life skills that are absolutely critical to the workplace. I'm going to take it to the extreme just to make a point even though this is not applicable in every single environment. I've got a client who runs a boutique hotel, and they say, Mr. Mack, at this particular organization, we employ for values. We don't employ for skills. The skills, and they were talking technical skills, we can train for. But the values or the life skills I just spoke about, they said, Someone has to have them. They need to be almost brought up in that way. They need to be in a community where they respect people. Those are absolutely essential. And we've all got access to that. We can give our kids that. The point I'm making is that the technical skills are important, absolutely. And we're expecting and we're hoping we ramp up our performance with the formal educational uh, institutions. Mm -hmm. But the life skills, those softer skills, When you speak to employers, those are absolutely critical as well. And there are many employers who take a chance with someone who's got fantastic people, life skills, self-discipline. They get to work on time. They take pride in the work. Even if they don't have the technical skills, they'll train them for it. And that's within our power as parents as uncles, as aunties. There, there's no dispute. There's absolutely no dispute there. Perhaps I should also go to the caller um, from Uppington. Aisha, thank you so much for calling us. And perhaps I should do this. The the lines are open, I beg your pardon. Johannesburg 714-2006, as is the WhatsApp facility, and I will engage it a little later. Aisha, go for it. Firstly, I miss you. Don't abscond like that without notifying us. One. Thank you. Two. To your guest, I want to take this from, from, from another angle. This is a structural matter. Uh, uh, I helped somebody mock about a week ago, week and a half ago. So, Geza, mm. our children can't read and write. Mm. This is children going 
to high school next year. Out of mm. all of those papers, there were only two children who understood what is the question. Mm. That is where we start to put the reading and writing. Firstly. Mm. Secondly, mm. teachers must not be given any administrative work. They must take that away so that they can focus on teaching. And thirdly, the classroom sizes must be made smaller and more classrooms must be built. Mm. And mm. fourthly, the union that thinks it is their job to power play and keep teachers away from, from, from teaching, that must be yeah. put a stop to. That yeah. is where we start. Not about privatization. We need to fix what is wrong. Very important okay. points. Thank you so much, Aisha. And yes, I apologize for an open-close quote absconding. wasn't really my instance, but yes, sure, point taken, and I'll address that. Do you want to respond, Dr. Mr. Mack? Fantastic point, Aisha. Fantastic point. Um, and, and specifically on the teachers and the administrative aspects, specifically on getting the basics right with regards to reading, writing, comprehension, so that students show understanding, and specifically on the political aspects relating to unions. Uh, the only difference, and it's not a difference, the only uh, uh, slightly uh, different perspective I have in terms of how we tackle the problem with Aisha is that we've known all these things for a very, very long time. And my concern is if we stick with the ideology, keep the private sector out, what we've known for the past 25 years plus will remain. The status quo will remain. The private sector is not better because it's the private sector. It's not. Anyone who says that is they don't understand business. They've lost their marbles. Right. The private sector tends to deliver better outcomes because they're incentivized better. That's the only reason. And if we can use that, if we can deploy those capabilities to improve the education our kids get, surely we should at the very least be prepared to look at it and not say let's shut out the private sector. But that's a red herring. It's a distraction. All I'm saying is let's look at anything that will help us get better education outcomes for our kids, which is how I would approach it with my own daughter. Anything that works, I'd be happy to look at it. Fantastic. Let's leave it there. I'm sure this conversation can only pick up momentum in the new year when the conversation is invariably about getting back to school, both for higher education as well as for basic education. So keep your eyes peeled on your phone for another call from Lesefo and perhaps we might even pair you up with somebody in the broader education space so that we can get a multiplicity of conversations going at the same time. Mr. Mack, for now, thank you. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. Thank you to your listeners too. Thank you, everyone. Go well, man. Take care. 2102, we don't have news, but we will take, if you like, a tea break with this song. SAFM wishes you a happy festive season. It's the best time of the year. SAFM, always leading you safely through the festive season. I know.